Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show. This week on the Ezra Klein Show, we have someone who it was slightly surreal for me to sit down with. The electronic music artist Moby has just released a really fascinating new autobiography. Maybe it's more of a memoir than an autobiography called Porcelain. I really have been reading this book. It really is excellent. And it is excellent even if you are not particularly interested in electronic music, though I happen to be, because this book is really a story of zoning and housing policy of animal rights and veganism and of New York in the 1980s, 1990s. What were the precise conditions that allowed his musical genre and in in a broader sense, sort of his creative world to emerge in New York at that moment? And he talks a lot about the crack epidemic, about the HIV epidemic, about what the culture was like, about where people could live, often in really substandard, probably illegal conditions. And so in this interview, we talk a lot about those issues and those questions. I'm I'm really fascinated by the conversation over whether in order to have the kind of artistic ferment we had at that time, you really need a, a very different set of policies and you need to permit things that maybe we would think of as unsafe or unwise in order to have cheap enough rents that low-paid creative types can gather. I think this is a topic many of you are interested in, if my email is any judge and if, and if Fox.com traffic statistics tell me anything. So I think that, that even if you don't think of yourself as a Moby fan, you'll, you'll want to hear this interview. I had a lot of fun doing it, and I hope you have as much fun listening to it. Before we get into that, of course, a couple quick asks. Three requests for you, if, if you are a fan of the show. The first is to share it. Please go on Facebook. Please go on Twitter. Share, use your email. Email, share the show with your friends. The the way the Ezra Klein show de- develops a bigger audience is because you, if you are actually liking it, if you are finding value in it, tell other people that it might be worth their time to it. It really means a lot to me when you take the time to do this. So, so if you have done it in the past or you are going to do it now, genuinely, thank you. My second request is to listen. If you are a fan of the show, I think you'll really like the other podcast I'm a part of, The Weeds, where I talk every week with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff about the hottest policy topics around. We get very deep into things like healthcare and inequality and economics 
comics and all the weedsy topics that so many of you love. So if you are listening to this show and you enjoy it, you should probably be listening to that one as well. The final request I have is to email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. It's always funny to me. I get a lot of emails and people say, oh, to whichever intern is reading this. I actually read this myself. There's no intern with access to the email account. And I really appreciate it. I appreciate the feedback and I really appreciate the guest suggestions. A lot of the guests who've come on the show have been people I got the idea to talk to from all of you. So send me guest suggestions. I also love to know what you want to know from people, either what are the kinds of questions you wish I would ask of everybody or what are the questions you wish I would ask of someone specific you're suggesting. I take all that stuff seriously. I want the show to have value to you. And I think the way that will happen is if I am listening to you. So please email over again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. All right. With all that said, now I'm going to sit down with someone whose music I listened to on endless repeat uh, when I was in high school, Moby. <laughs> I haven't done one of these remote in-studio interviews in a long time. And so it's odd hearing my own voice in headphones because normally in interviews, I do everything in my power to not hear my own voice. My actual nerdy, inbred, waspy voice. <laughs> the worst part I've always found of being a journalist is having to transcribe your own interviews because you have to listen to yourself in your ears. It, and there's nothing I have more insecurity or self-loathing about than my own voice on tape. Yeah, I remember the first time I heard my voice on tape, I actually wondered. I was like, why, why does my family actually love me? Like, if I heard this voice... <laughs> <laughs> what was the answer? Uh, I don't know, obligation. <laughs> Um, so, so something I thought was fascinating about the book was how much it was a story of what I would characterize as zoning policy, low rents, and New York City uh, in, in a very certain period. I mean, it really seemed to me that a big part of the way you see your own story is what was possible in New York real estate in the 1980s. Does that seem right to you? Yeah. And I was having this conversation with a friend of mine recently that like, let's say it's late 80s, early 90s, and you are an aspiring musician, writer, director, what have you, and you want to live in some crummy, cheap, low-rent urban environment, you had so many places to choose from. You could move to New York, you could move to D.C., you could move to L.A., San Francisco, Seattle, London, Paris, like all these like kind of rundown, inexpensive urban environments. And I was just feeling a little sad for like the young people of today. Like where do they go to make art or make music and not have to worry about the rent? Because I feel like almost every urban environment now is prohibitively expensive. So certainly that aspect of the book of, you know, like paying $50 a month to squat in an abandoned factory or my first apartment in New York where I paid $185 a month to live like next to a crack den. Today, I don't know if that exists and where it exists. Tell me about your first apartment in New York. What, what was that place like? Where was it exactly? It was on the corner of 14th and 3rd and we were on the ground floor. It was a three-bedroom apartment and I think the total rent was maybe like $1,200 and I shared it with three other, three or four other people. And I had the smallest room and my windows faced a shaftway that was literally filled with garbage. It had about three or four feet of condensed piled up garbage. And there's this one story in the book about a drug addict in the building next to ours who fell out of the third story window and the garbage saved his life. Like the EMTs came and they were able to take him away alive. They said if he had fallen onto a concrete shaftway, he probably would have died. But the fact that there was three feet of condensed garbage literally kept him from dying. 
One thing that was fascinating listening to you describe these places you lived in, and, and you mentioned the warehouse you lived in before this, which had no running water, did not, as far as I could tell, have a bathroom, was how much of this seems to have been, at least would be today, unlawful, right? The warehouse, you were, you were literally squatting, but, but a lot of the places you lived seemed to be in, in violation of all kinds of, of health and safety codes. And, and it, it got me thinking, I'd be curious for, for your thoughts on this, how much the regulations we've put in place to protect people actually end up stifling the ability of, of people to get their start by making a choice as you made as you made a choice, a rational choice to accept worse conditions in order to be in a place that was more artistically productive. Well, I think that sort of speaks to like the 20th century and in the 20th century, so many rules and regulations were passed with ostensibly the best intentions. But then it's almost like the bureaucracy and you know, the, the regulations take on a, a, a life of their own. And at one point, you know, these regulations, these rules are passed to serve the needs of the people. And then it sort of gets to the point where like the rules just exist to keep civil servants in business. I mean, I'm, I know I'm being glib and overgeneralizing, but I certainly think that it might be nice at some point to almost have like a year zero for not not to reference Pol Pot, but a year zero <laughs> for like rules and regulations. That, just like that is the first time I think somebody has made on the show a, a Pol Pot driven political recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> but to like start from scratch and to say like, OK, we are like struggling under this weight of regulations and a lot of them make a lot of sense but some of them are just at this point so arbitrary and onerous so yeah i i'm glad that you know when i was living illegally in a factory simply that no one bothered to pay attention because everything about it was illegal like it was a fire trap i didn't have running water i didn't have a bathroom you know who knows how old the wiring was we were exposed to all sorts of creepy chemicals which is probably why i'm bald today but at the same time, it enabled me to pay $50 a month to a security guard so I could sort of essentially squat in this abandoned factory and work on music and not have to worry about paying the rent. So I was really grateful to sort of have lived adjacent to the law. How did you live in that warehouse? I mean, in a very technical day-to-day -day way, you didn't have a bathroom, you didn't have running water. So how did you go to the bathroom? How did you take showers? How did you make a life out of that? As gross as this is, like sometimes weeks would go by without bathing. And not surprisingly, my dating life during this time was almost non-existent because not too many ladies were lining up to date guys who were squatting in abandoned factories and crack neighborhoods with no access to running water. And why did that seem like a, a good play to you? And, and, and the way I mean it is this. When you were thinking about becoming uh, a, a, a musician, in theory, there are a lot of ways you could have gone about it. But you went to this abandoned warehouse. You could have just lived with your parents or something. You weren't that much further from, from New York if you had done that. So what was it about that location and the ones you ultimately took that you think was important in your development, that you think if you hadn't done, things would have taken a different path for you? Hmm. I guess one is the sort of like, you know, that I come from old New England stock. And so the fact that I was living within my means, you know, I was making $4,000 a year and paying $50 a month in squatter's rent. So there was a sort of almost like Calvinist virtue in that. Also, and it's hard to describe, but I was really happy there. 
you know, there's something about this old industrial environment. I had like these big windows that faced south. And so I didn't have indoor plumbing and I was broke and it smelled funny and there were crack addicts dying and shooting each other. But the light was beautiful and I had free electricity and it was only $50 a month. So and the, the cons were also awful, but really fascinating because they were so foreign to what most of my friends were dealing with. So I sort of loved being, you know, the only white person in this neighborhood that was culturally so different from what my friends were currently dealing with. I'm going to guess, not knowing your situation in any intimate way, that you have a much nicer home now, that you have better transportation, that that you have more comforts in your life. Are you happier now than you were then? Uh, hmm. Not necessarily. I don't think I'm less happy, but I mean, first of all, I'm 50 years old now. And, you know, back then I was in my early 20s and being 50 is perfectly fine, but I'm not 22 anymore. So there's a little wistfulness there. And also one thing that happens, and I find this if you, if I hear interviews with whether it's like older musicians or actors or whomever is like, you realize that period in your early 20s when you're struggling there's something so enervating about it, especially because you, you're part of this group of people and you're all roughly sharing the same socioeconomic circumstances and you're all living these like dramatic aspirational lives. And in hindsight, like, you know, time passes and essentially the world becomes lonelier, you know, because your friends get married, they have kids and you never feel the same connection with a peer group as you felt when you were like really struggling in your early 20s. So I have a, a different type of happiness now, but I don't think it's necessarily happier, even though I actually do have running water and a bathroom I can use whenever I want. It's a really interesting point about the, the, the peer group. Do you think being engaged in that kind of group is important for the kind of creativity you needed in, in, in your job, which is to say, do you think you could have developed your style and done the kind of music you did without that? I mean, for me, there was a big balance between almost my like solipsistic work life where, you know, I would disappear into my tiny little studio and work on music in this very ascetic, almost monastic way. And then I would leave and go hang out with my friends who were engaged in similar processes, whether they were writers or artists or musicians there was just this sense of this, this magical sense of no, none of us knew what was going to happen, you know, and I think that, and this might be a depressing way to look at aging, but aging is basically the process by which you're, you shed potential. You know what I mean? Like when you're 10 years old, you could be a football player, a basketball player, an astronaut, a president, a hair model. And then every year after 20, some of those little like aspects of potential just sort of fall by the wayside. And then you get to a certain point and you realize, oh, okay, I'll never be a professional athlete. I'll never be an astronaut. I'll never be the president. And you make a sort of like slightly grudging piece with all that. Right. Even if it turns out well year by year that your life becomes more predictable to you. Yeah. I mean, you, you stop saying like, oh, that could happen someday. <laughs> you know, you just sort of, you don't say that quite as often. Like, you know, you see 
an interview with like a beautiful person on TV or something and, and you think to yourself like, oh, maybe someday I could date that person. Then you realize, mm, no, no, there's a <laughs> th- th- that just will never happen. Is there I, I don't want to ask exactly is there comfort in this, but it, it's interesting having this conversation with you because I think that when you know, when I think about that, uh, those emotions and, and that way of looking at the future, which, you know, I had more of I'm not that old, but I had more of 10 years ago than I do today. And I think about your life, you know, in theory, the consolation is that it turned out in many ways uh, at the upper end of, of, of possibility and probably beyond a lot of the possibilities you imagined. And yet the, the cost of that is still that other paths weren't taken. So is there comfort in the fact that it, it went well, you became Moby, a sort of human being known by your first name all, all around the world, or is it still... Yeah, maybe it would have been fun to be an architect. There, there's some comfort, I guess. I mean, it's hard to say because I've never been anyone else, at least not that I'm aware of. And the fact that, like, I have enough sort of, like, financial stability that I don't have to worry too much about paying the rent. So there's certainly a comfort that comes with that as well. But at the same time, yeah, like, most likely I will never be an architect. I'll never be a park ranger. I'll never be a president. I'll do all these things. And I'm not complaining. I'm just saying... Listen, if Donald Trump can do it. Oh, yeah, that's actually, you know, politician-wise. I mean, think of, like, Jesse Ventura and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, you're young for a politician. Yeah. <laughs> and probably... Like if over- you went to the Senate, you'd be a baby. And probably overqualified at this point. <laughs> um, but that aspect of the comfort, and this is going to sound maybe a little too new agey, but part of the comfort actually comes with this sense of solidarity. The fact that, you know, everything that's ever been born at some point has succumbed to what we'll call like existential entropy. You know, at at some point, every organism for the last three and a half billion years has jumped the shark. And accepting that, you know, like understanding like, well, So my life might have some wistful disappointments, but oh, so does everyone and so does everything. And there's sort of like ideally like a beautiful solidarity somewhere in that and like a sense of compassion born of that solidarity. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. 
Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. It has always struck me that one of the comforts of going through different life events and, you know, and, and harder ones, right? People you care about dying is having a group of people around you going through the same ones, feeling not alone in that. Like you're not the only one who is, you know, watching the horizons narrow a little bit or, or, or dealing with these traumas. Yeah. I mean, the big epiphany I had around that and keeping in mind, a lot of my epiphanies are really self-evident. Like I feel like they're epiphanies to me, but things that are self-evident to everyone else. But I was on the 10, which is a freeway in Los Angeles, actually a freeway that goes from LA to, I think, Florida. But I was on the 10 driving to Coachella and I was sitting in traffic and it was just grim. Like it was one of those days where it was like kind of overcast but hot and the traffic was terrible and we were stuck outside some beige Home Depot and everything about it was grim and I was feeling terrible about this. And all of a sudden I realized, oh, everybody else hates this too. And there was this (laughs) moment of solidarity and it's the same thing of, you know, we're calling like, you know, the narrowing of potential, we all go through it. And let, except for the sociopaths. I feel like the sociopaths are maybe a little more capable of like self-delusion based on the sociopaths I've known. So everyone apart from the sociopaths, we sort of broadly speaking, I think, experience the human condition to some extent in the same way. So I want to talk to you a bit about, uh, about the music itself because I have both uh, a deep love for your music, uh, uh, a lot of... Um, investment and time in, in, in the sort of genres, but also I feel a lot of ignorance about it and, and a lot of ignorance that is probably shared. So when you started out, what was the genre of music you were in? How was it described? Well, my background as a musician is so odd because when I was very young, I played classical music and I studied music theory. And then in junior high school, I discovered punk rock. And so I started playing in punk rock bands I played bass in a reggae band for a little while, which really? I'm not altogether proud of because there is that long kind of like shameful tradition of white people like trying to play reggae. And I unfortunately was one of those people, especially in New England, like New England, white people trying to play reggae. Like there's not a lot of good precedent there. And then I got into dance music in the 80s. And I guess at the time there was dance music and there was hip hop. And one of the only subgenres would have been freestyle, which is more like Latino dance music. And then dancehall reggae, which was like reggae that you could play in a nightclub. But at the time, let's say like 1987, 1988, those were the only four genres of dance music of which I was aware. And there has been this explosion in genres since. I mean, what do you get classified as now? It depends who I'm talking to. Like I'll go online and I'll look at dance music websites and I'll see all, yeah, all these different subgenres and genres. And I, maybe I shouldn't admit this in public, but I sort of stopped paying attention a while ago because none of the genres made sense to me and nor did it necessarily affect whether I liked a piece of music or not. So I'd rather, I don't know, just happily be ignorant 
as regards the world of genre and just listen to music and enjoy it for what it is. I can't tell you how comforting it is to hear you say that the genres didn't make sense to you because un until this very second, I have felt like an, like really stupid because I cannot seem to figure out how you separate Deep House from Tropical House to Trap to all these things that seem to blur into each other. But but if you can't either, that doesn't seem as uh, devastating to my self-image. And sometimes, and this might sound like apostasy in the world of electronic dance music, but like sometimes the genres kind of sound the same. You know, like I'll listen to a progressive house track or an electro track or a techno track and I'm like, but they're all the same BPM and they all kind of do the same thing. Like how I, I, you know, I'm sure anyone listening who is like an active EDM DJ is probably like slapping themselves in the forehead and like, you know, vowing to never to listen to my music again. But I can't tell a lot of the genres apart. You just talked about what all these do. And so I was going to ask you about literally how it is that you make your music. And, and to do that, I wanted to read just a passage from from the book that I read and then read again and then thought to myself, I have no idea what any of these words mean. <laughs> so you're talking about the first time, I believe it's the first time you played a, a live show. And you said you went up there and you hooked up the MIDI cables from the sequencer to the drum machines, sampler and the keyboards. You plugged in the audio cables that connected the 16 channel mixer with the keyboards, Oberheim sound module, sampler and drum machine. Then you connected the Alessis quadriverb multi effects unit to the mixer. Then you turned everything on. Can you tell me what those things are? <laughs> and when I see a DJ working uh, live, what is happening up there? Because I think a lot of people, including myself sometimes, just you just see a bunch of knobs. Well, nowadays, everything you just described exists in the world of software. It's like no self-respecting electronic musician now would actually use all of that stuff. Everything I could do with my electronic music studio 20 some odd years ago can now be done with software that costs about $100, which is very egalitarian and I guess great. So I could happily explain everything that you just read, but it would kind of almost be akin to explaining how a manual elevator works or <laughs> explaining like a horse and carriage or a film camera, like you could read that chapter to someone who's very successfully making electronic dance music today and they wouldn't even know what any of that stuff meant. Well, well then give me a theory level explanation of, of at least a bit of how you make the music. When you watch a rock band to some degree, there's a sense, okay, that guy's playing the guitar, that woman is playing the drums and, and you can put it together in your head. Whereas I think with a lot of this, there's a black box. When you create a track, what is it that you do? Well, I mean, me personally, because I approach making music a little more idiosyncratically. So oftentimes I'll start out by playing guitar or playing keyboards and then I'll take what I've written on guitar or piano and, you know, work on it within Pro Tools or Logic or some type of electronic music software. But at its most basic, there are only three things going on. Something that makes the sound something that helps the sound to sound better, and then a third thing that enables you to record the sound. And, of course, there's varying levels of complexity within each of those areas, but basically that's what's happening. It's like something is generating the sound, whether it's a drum or a keyboard or an orchestral sound. Then you put that through something else that enables it to sound really nice, and then at the very end you record it in a way that it can be then sort of disseminated throughout the world. But those 
three things, that's pretty much on a very rudimentary level, that's what's going on. And something that you talk about a lot in the book is the time you spent in record shops finding, you know, old records, finding new sounds. You talk about, you know, all the DJs coming at the same time on Friday when the new stuff came out and, and listening to it get played in, in, in public and everybody grabbing for it. Is that kind of, I think what people call, you know, like crate digging still a thing or is all that, are there now just huge libraries where you get these sounds from? Yeah, I think that some people are still going to record stores. I try to I mean, I live in L.A. now, and luckily there's still a bunch of record stores there. So I try to go to record stores. But in terms of buying dance music, there are some portals like Beatport where they pretty much have every dance record ever made, and they all cost around a dollar. So it's way easier to go and just, you know, buy your music online. Uh, I mean, I do miss, because I'm old, so I sort of miss that experience of going to the record store and the way they smelled and the, you know, the way music sounded when it was being played in a record store with, you know, a bunch of other DJs and the, the tactile, almost like somatic experience of like holding a record and like smelling the vinyl. But that's just old guy nostalgia at this point. Do you think there's anything but old guy nostalgia there? Do you think anything fundamental changes or gets lost in, in the actual music that is created when the tools change so dramatically? I almost don't trust my perspective because I think that, you know, whatever my perspective is, is so colored by the fact that the old way of doing things was so familiar. So I could never in any way criticize the new way of making music or disseminating it or selling it or not selling it because I'm familiar with that but on a more sort of ingrained, almost genetic level, I'm way more familiar with making music and disseminating it in a, very, in a radically different, almost more like Newtonian physical way. So that's why I kind of don't trust my like old guy, Grandpa Simpson approach to new technology. I, I'm always curious because I have a very deep suspicion of those impulses in, in myself and in others. I'm very skeptical when people tell me how things used to be better in the old days. And so I always wonder if I overcorrect to the, the wrong side on that. If I'm so unwilling to believe things are better in the past that I actually miss important ways in which things change because I'm on some fundamental level not open to those arguments and explanations. There, there almost has to be rational criteria by which change is evaluated. You know, and it, like when someone says things were better in the olden days, if their sole criteria is I'm old and scared and the old stuff was familiar, that can be dismissed. You know, but if there is rational criteria applied to it, like, for example, like posture, like I think that people had way better posture in the olden days before they were spending 14 hours a day on Instagram, Facebook, etc. Which doesn't mean that Instagram and Facebook are bad, but I'm just saying like, Posture probably was better in olden times. So then putting tools aside, when you explain the story of your own career to yourself, why did it work out? Why do you think you ended up being really good at making music? What were the things you had that ended up being important? First and foremost, and I guess this should be self-evident, but I think in some people's cases it isn't, is I just had such a deep emotional love for and connection to music. You know, when I was growing up, almost nothing affected me as profoundly as music did. 
And so when I became a musician, it was simply to try and be a part of this world that had already touched me so deeply. And I think if you couple that with the fact that I didn't have a fallback plan, you know, I didn't know how to do anything else. Because I've seen, you know, a lot of writers, artists, musicians, they pursue writing art, music for a few years. And if it doesn't work out, they go do something else. But the only other thing I was even remotely qualified to do was to be like a community college teacher teaching philosophy. And I wasn't even qualified to do that because I never really graduated from college. So I just didn't have a fallback job. And I think it helps then to love, love what you're doing and have no other options. And that sometimes leads people to having success, at least more so than if you don't love what you're doing and if you have a fallback plan. But I want to put you on that a little bit because there had to be many people in your cohort at the time you were coming up who loved and were deeply connected to music and, and had even less of a fallback plan than you do. You're a smart guy. You, as you say, had some training in philosophy. You are a really good writer. Uh, there, there are probably people in, in the scene who had, you know, even even less than that in terms of the skills they could bring to a job interview. So when you think about why your albums at a certain point began to succeed, what is it? What, what was it that you heard or what was it that you saw in the audience that other people didn't see? I've never thought of it that way, but I would think there's almost the longing for emotional connection through music. Uh, I mean, ideally, all art is capable of doing these two basic things, which is on one hand, expressing the sort of like joy and confusion and sadness and bafflement of the human condition, but also trying to share that with someone. And maybe a lot of musicians, I think, can sometimes become too academic or they start employing like non-subjective, non-emotional criteria to their music. They start becoming very technical. I wish I had a better answer, but I think it somehow comes down to making music that you love and working under the hope and assumption that someone else might love it as well. Were you ever disappointed by what ended up connecting? Uh, in, in the book, one of the turning points, it seems clear, is you have the song Go, which is a, a B-side, and then you, in a day later on, create a remix uh, based on watching Twin Peaks that ends up becoming a massive UK dance hit. And so I went back and I listened to the original Go, at least as much as I could find it, and then the, the Wood Tick remix it that blew up. And I was curious how you felt about the, the remix one, because I was actually shocked by how different they were. And the original one is felt to me much more technical and very clean and very futuristic. And the second one, which, like, I guess, much of the public I connected to more easily, is this very lush, emotional sound. It's familiar. It, it has this kind of mournful quality to it. Did the things that worked ever surprise you or, or make you feel misunderstood? Because if you're going for emotional connection and people connect to the things that are maybe not your original vision, I could imagine that would be a little tough. I mean, I'm sure that that's happened. But at the same time, like, for example, if you and I were to go see Neil Diamond, I would jump up and down when I heard the hits. And Neil Diamond might really want us to listen to his more obscure B-sides. But deep down, like, I saw, I saw Duran Duran the other week, and I was super excited to hear the old hits. 
you know, the stuff that was more accessible and populist. So it'd be weird for me to have that relationship to other people's music, but then really expect people to pay attention to my sort of more like, I don't know, obscure, difficult stuff. So if I make something and it ends up having an emotional connection or a populist appeal, I have nothing to complain about. I'm still just kind of amazed that I've been able to have a life making music and that at times people have been willing to listen to it. When you think about who you've connected with, uh, you really drove home something that for me I didn't know, which was that, that the sort of club scene in, in that period in New York was overwhelmingly African-American, uh, Hispanic and, and, and gay. And then you talk about going to the UK and you've got a bunch of suburban straight white kids who are, are raving at, at your shows. How did you feel as the composition of your audience in America changed over time? I felt both a little bit more familiar. Like, for example, as my audience became more suburban and more Caucasian, it made more sense to me because I grew up in the suburbs and I'm Caucasian. But there was also a sadness, almost like a wistfulness, because in the late 80s, into the early 90s, when I was accepted into the more African-American, Latino, gay club world, it felt like an honor and a privilege to be sort of accepted into a world that I hadn't grown up with and to be exposed to like mores and codes that hadn't been mine when I was growing up in suburban Connecticut. So I guess I really missed, you know, that time of like, unfortunately or accidentally moving away from the more sort of African-American Latino club culture that I'd spent a lot of time with. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. When you began going to, to those clubs and you were just a, a kid starting out, what was the reaction to you like? I mean, what, what did that feel like coming from a place where you had been, I assume, primarily in communities of, of other suburban white kids and all of a sudden, you know, being on a stage in, in communities that were pretty new to you? It felt sort of like, an, like a revelatory quality. Like I'd find myself in parts of New York that honestly I hadn't even known existed. And to be in these clubs, and I think I sort of write about this in the book, there was like a celebratory quality to African-American nightlife and Latino nightlife and gay nightlife that hadn't existed for me in the world of white people nightlife. You know, like the people I grew up with were 
very nice, but we're, you know, calmly drinking Rolling Rock beer and listening to indie rock bands. And I'm not in any way maligning Rolling Rock beer or indie rock, but it was much more calm and internal. And then you'd go to a house music club or a hip hop club and the music sounded like nothing I'd ever heard before and people were celebrating in ways that I'd never experienced and it felt like such a thrill to be a part of that. And also the, the sort of like there was an exclusionary aspect where like I knew that no one I had ever been friends with or had grown up with was having access to this culture in the way that I did and I felt very protective of it. Do you think it ended up changing your music? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that if I hadn't experienced, you know, gay, black, Latino music and nightlife in New York, I probably would never have made dance music. But, you know, it's kind of what led me to in the 80s to put down my guitar and start making electronic dance music because I just at the time was so much more inspired by it. I mean, now I've come to love everything. But there was this moment in the mid 80s where I did kind of make this almost like, and it's a weird analogy, but like the Saul on the road to Damascus. Like I heard gay disco and I heard early house music and hip hop and the scales fell from my eyes and I suddenly decided to stop being an indie rock kid and embrace, you know, African-American dance music. Do you think that celebratory feeling in the nightlife has migrated to straight Caucasian nightlife or is that something that has continued to be a, a dividing line? I mean... Clearly, all of us are capable of celebration. You know, even the most like uptight white suburban guy like me is still, you know, is capable of being celebratory. I just feel like maybe, again, maybe it's the legacy of Calvinism. I don't know what it is, but I feel like other cultures are more trustful of celebration. And so I don't know if it comes as easily to some of us uptight white suburban people as it does to other cultures. And that's why I was so grateful to have access to it. I mean, clearly, I've been at some white people events that are very celebratory, but nothing like being in an underground nightclub in New York in 1988 that was gay and black and Latino and people just celebrating in ways that were really transcendent. What's a, a night that you looked out and, you know, early in your career and you said to yourself that, that there's some different quality, there's some different quality of, of celebration or transcendence. What was it that drove that home to you that you hadn't seen before? I think it was the comfort around it because there were so many nights like that, especially in the nightclub Mars where I worked. I remember one time there was a DJ in New Jersey and I idolized him. His name was Tony Humphreys. And one time I went out to Newark to see him and, and that was great. But there was another time he came into Manhattan and he was playing a set and he was a legend in the gay black Latino club world. So I was in the middle of the dance floor and I was the only straight white person there and he played this record and I'd never heard it before, but to everyone else in the audience, it was an anthem. And I guess it's also to what extent, like th what the music represents to people or what it represented to people. Because we're talking about this is the late 80s, early 90s, when New York and the gay community had been so ravaged by AIDS and homophobia. And so it was a relationship to iconic dance music that it just felt really multifaceted and remarkable. You know, as opposed to saying like, oh, I like this song. It's fun. 
it represented so much more than that. You talk in the book a bit about this being a period that is both the height of the AIDS epidemic and the height of the crack epidemic and, and the, the crime wave that came alongside that. How did, how did that change the scene? Well, it changed the scene in that it made nightlife both more dangerous but also like a refuge. I mean, New York City in the late 80s was a really rough, gnarly place. Um, the good thing about that was rents were cheap. The bad thing was you took your life in your hands every time you left your apartment or even when you stayed home. And then you'd go to these nightclubs and the nightclubs, and until people started shooting each other, the nightclubs felt like an odd refuge or a haven, especially for people in communities who were way more at risk than I was. So there was a necessary aspect to it. And, and I think it also, like friends of mine from former Yugoslavia, maybe who lived in Sarajevo during the war, they might have had similar experiences of the wonderful paradox of being able to celebrate at a time when everything around you is falling apart and is, you know, just a very difficult, dark time and place and environment in which to live. When you talk about the, the low rents of that period, it, it reminds me of something my uh, colleague Matt Iglesias has written about, and he's got a, a, a book called The Rent is Too Damn High, which is all about the cost to the economy and the cost to creativity and other things of, you know, tight zoning that, that leads to very high rents. But something he says in, in the book that has stuck with me is that in many parts of the country, we have tended to use high crime, high poverty, poor public services, et cetera as a kind of affordable housing policy, that these, thing, that these things come together. Do you think that there is some way to have the artistic community that, that you value from that period absent the really substandard living conditions that, that a lot of people suffered really severely from? Do you think that there's a way to, to recreate that world without recreating the things that kept money out of it and so kept the, the rent so low? Um, e Yes, and not to be glib, but I think a lot of it's what's being facilitated by being able to like create and work online where, for example, if you were a photographer or a filmmaker or even an author or a musician, up until recently, you kind of needed to be in a major metropolitan area. You know, if you're a musician, you needed to be in New York or Los Angeles or London so that you could work in recording studios and be signed to record labels and go on radio stations. And it was important to be in that environment. But now, because of accessibility and online access, like most people don't really need to be anywhere in order to successfully do their work. So I feel like a lot of people as a result are almost compartmentalizing where they're saying their work life happens online and then where they're going to live is going to be based on quality of life. You know, like a lot of people moving to upstate New York or people moving to Joshua Tree or people moving to places that can afford them like a really nice quality of life, but traditionally wouldn't have been feasible as places to live because they were so remote and you wouldn't have been able to work from those places. But now it seems like that has changed. That's really interesting, though, because one of the questions I was going to ask you was, if you were starting out today, where would you go? And it sounds like from that, the answer is you would log on. You would go to the forums on Beatport mm -hmm. or something. Does that have the leveling effect, it sounds like? Or are there things that are just lost in day-to-day -day collaboration with people you can see and, 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 and meet on the street that, that you miss? Because something that is 
present in what you're talking about is how much the audience meant to you and how much the people were showing up meant to you. And this sounds to be more like a cerebral connection between different kinds of creators. Yeah. And then the, the sort of the danger of online provincialism, you know, and we certainly see that in the political world where the far left and the far right are so accommodated by their the parts of where they hang out online and the media they're exposed to just reinforces their worldview. And I do think there was a lot to be said for when media was a little broader and more almost ecumenical, when, you know, we were all experiencing roughly the same things and we weren't quite as polarized, you know, because I see this like my friends, I don't, for better or worse, I don't have any friends on the far right, but we certainly read about them. But my friends on the far left, like they've started to disappear down rabbit holes of obscurity and sort of like arcane policy that makes a lot of sense to them because they only talk to each other. It seems really dangerous and in, in the world of culture as well. You know, like now people are only exposed to the things that are presented to them via Facebook. They're not necessarily as exposed to worldviews that might not even be contradictory, but that might represent something different from their sort of like provincial cul-de-sac. It's really interesting to hear you say that because on the one hand, it, it feels like so much of what you valued and what you talk about in, in the book about that period in New York was the ability to be in niches where folks who maybe weren't represented well in the broader culture could could find a community, but they had to do so at great cost. They had to live in this dangerous place. They had to come out at three in the morning. They had to be, you know, way, way, way out where the subway ends. And now in a way, it, it, what you're saying is that the internet has made it so easy that you never have to exit it. Far from having to fight to find your community to, to be involved with, now it's so easy that you actually don't have to be involved with folks who are not your community. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. And that that worries me just because it, it does push people even further to the fringes. And I mean, I understand the appeal of fringe culture. You know, it's really, and I say this as, you know, like a serious vegan, like it's really nice to hang out with other vegans, but it's nice to get the perspective of non-vegans, you know, and I'm a progressive Democrat, but I actually do appreciate getting the perspective of non-progressive Democrats or even non-progressive Republicans just to sort of get a sense of what's going on in the rest of the world. And it can just become way too insular and just almost tautological in terms of like the messaging you're, like people are putting out there and the messaging that they're responding to. And I think there's also the danger then of conflation where you confuse the concerns of your very small insular group with the concerns of the broader world at large. And like I sadly see this with some of my progressive friends, you know, like people who only go to super progressive left-wing websites, which are really well-intentioned, but they start thinking that, you know, the things that they're talking about really matter to like a family of four in Cleveland. And I'm like, you know, the family of four in Cleveland probably has different concerns. It might be good to actually sort of like encounter people who are not just living in Bushwick and spending all their time on, you know, far left websites. I'd love to talk for a minute about your, your veganism. If I, if I read the, the chronology right, you've been a vegan now for about 30 years. Yeah, I became yeah. a vegetarian, I think, 32 years ago, and I've been a vegan now for 28 years. What made the change from vegetarianism? It was gradual. Uh, I mean, it all came from the fact that I love animals and I just can't in good conscience be involved in anything that would 
contribute to or cause animal suffering. But I mean, I also had the sort of paradoxical animal existence that most people have, which is when I was growing up, I loved animals, but I ate animals. And almost on a neuro, like a neurochemical level, like loving animals and eating animals both made me happy until I was around 19 years old. And I realized that unfortunately, at least for me, loving animals and eating animals was inconsistent. What triggered that? Was there anybody in your life who was an animal rights activist or thinker or was it something? Uh, my mom had been an aspiring vegetarian, but every time she tried to serve me brown rice and tofu when I was growing up, I would accuse her of child abuse. But then when I was 19 years old, I was petting a rescue cat named Tucker, who I had adopted when he was just a tiny little baby. And I loved this cat so much. And in one moment, I sort of extrapolated and I realized that this cat had two eyes and a central nervous system and a profoundly rich life, a very rich emotional life and a deep innate desire to avoid pain. And I suddenly in an instant realized that any animal with two eyes and a central nervous system had a rich emotional life and a deep desire to avoid pain. And at that moment, I became a vegetarian and, you know, a couple of years later transitioned into becoming a vegan. So I know so many people who have had a version of that epiphany, including at, at times myself, and have, you know, then been vegetarian or even vegan for, for a period of time and, and, and fallen back. It's, in my experience, very rare for it to, to stick as long as it has with you. So why do you think you've kept it so long? What do you think is different about your approach to that lifestyle that has made it sustainable? Uh, I think part of it is when I was very, very young, my parents and the adults in my life were very unstable. You know, when I was growing up, I grew up around a lot of chaos on the part of adults. And I almost think that part of my brain was then hardwired to not necessarily trust or be comfortable with adults. And at the same time, I grew up around very wonderful animals. So I feel like neurologically, I was hardwired to really love animals and feel comfortable with them. So when I finally realized, when my brain was hardwired to sort of accept that animals have rich emotional lives and a desire to avoid suffering, it just became almost like an ingrained fact that I could no longer find any way to work around. And I don't necessarily judge or criticize people who disagree with me. It's just, for me, it's like a hardwired fact as opposed to an elective choice. So I'm curious, why don't you judge or, or criticize people who disagree with you on that? I mean, I, I recognize that that is the polite thing to say here. But on the other hand, you know, one person being vegan, you could donate a thousand bucks to a farm sanctuary a year and probably spare more animals than, than, than you would normally eat. So if if you have these conclusions and if you feel strongly about them, do you think there's any moral need to actually be more judgmental, to be more well, pushy? I think it? I can be pushy, but without being judgmental. And the reason I have a hard time being judgmental, one, is the utility of it. You know, I think of myself when I was 18 years old and I was eating at Burger King. If a vegan had come to me when I was 18 and started yelling at me and judging me, I simply would have argued with them or laughed at them. And so their judging me wouldn't have necessarily achieved any good results. So if I judge someone or if I yell at them or I become didactic and strident, all I do is alienate them. 
so there's that aspect of it. But also, it's hard for me to judge for the simple reason that as far as I know, I'm not omniscient. And so when if I look at a person, I don't necessarily know where they've been or, you know, what has led them to be who they are, but also I have no idea what they're going to turn into, you know? So that person who's like a militant anti-vegan who's eating foie gras, who knows, tomorrow they might wake up and have, you know, a crisis of conscience and become a really effective animal rights campaigner. And so I feel like the best thing I can do is just like share my experience and the information that I have and hope that, which might sound like typical wishy-washy progressive left-wing nonsense, but it's, I actually believe that, that I just share my perspective and hopefully let them make up their own minds. That is until I become the first globally elected dictator of the entire world, at which point (laughs) raising animals for food becomes illegal. So this is something we actually talk about a fair amount of the show just because I've been interested in, in these questions, animal rights. So after 30 years of being, almost 30 years of being vegan, if somebody was trying to test that lifestyle now, what, what, are, your, what are your tips for them? What, what would you have them um, do? My tips would be, the first thing I would say to someone would be to go online and just educate yourself as much as you can about both like the personal and global consequences of animal agriculture. And then maybe go on Netflix and watch a few documentaries like Cowspiracy and Forks Over Knives. I mean, there's so much information out there. And I'm really sort of baffled. Like someone did ask me the other day why I was a vegan. And I finally just let it all out. And I said, well, I'm a vegan because I love animals but also because animal agriculture causes 51% of climate change, 90% of rainforest deforestation, 100% of famine, at least 50% of cancer, diabetes, heart disease, obesity, probably 75% of antibiotic resistance, 25% of ocean acidification, 40% of water use. And I just kept going. And they looked at me and I'm like, oh, okay, those are, those are pretty compelling reasons. So let me just end on the question we ask every guest, which is what are three books you would recommend to the audience? Three books. What a good question. Um, hmm, it's a hard one. I mean, like the book that I have probably read more than any other and I still it still makes me really happy is The Once and Future King by I think it was mm-hmm. T.H. White. I know there's T.H. White and E.B. White. I get confused. But one of the, one of the, you know, like two initials White. I first read that book when I was maybe 12 years old and I fell in love with it. And it makes me really happy. The book that really inspired me in the writing of my book was The Journals of John Cheever. Because I think that John Cheever is probably certainly one of the best American writers. And then as a third book, and this is really going to, prove that I'm a hippie from Southern California is I would go with like the collected (laughs) poems of Kabir. Kabir was a Sufi poet along with like Rumi and Hafiz, you know, 13th century Iranian Sufi poet. But his poetry, like there's such a wonderful, joyful, kind spirituality to it. So I would go as that as my third book. All right. Moby, I'd I'd love to talk longer. I I know we're out of time, but this is great. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was really nice talking to you as well. I'm sorry we couldn't do it in person. 
That was Moby. Really appreciate him spending the time with us. I'm sorry we got cut off there. We just had a bit of a studio crunch, but hopefully we'll be able to do a round two some other time. As always, the Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. And thank you to all of you wonderful people who tune in every week and make this a worthwhile endeavor for us all. You're all terrific, and I hope you have a terrific day. 